trying to find a way for this mic to be on, but I can still move. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for having me here this evening. I am absolutely delighted to be back at Goucher. Um, you know, Goucher shows up very often on lists and in books, things like, you know, colleges that change people's lives. And that was clearly true for me. Um, I started college planning to be a high school teacher, not that there's anything wrong with that. I have to say to my mother, the high school teacher, and my own high school history teacher, who are both here. Um, but, but I was really encouraged here by my fantastic professors to think about research and the academic life as a you know, life for myself. And it really did. It, it sent me in a different direction, one that I find tremendously gratifying. And I'm really pleased to be back here tonight to discuss the topic of my uh, most recent book. So my book is about American Jewish women in the suffrage, birth control, and peace movements before World War II. The title is Ballots, Babies, and Banners of Peace, American Jewish Women's Activism, 1890 to 1940. Um, my sister actually once told me, it really, since it's about the birth control movement, it really should be called Ballots, Not So Many Babies, and Banners of Peace. <laughs> but that doesn't, it, the alliteration just doesn't work, <laughs> so we left that out. But I'm very often asked how I came to write this book. What is it that led me to write this book? So I want to start by talking about that briefly. As a historian of American women, someone trained in a, a women's history PhD program with actually another Goucher alum, my distinguished advisor, uh, Alice Kessler-Harris, I noticed even from the time I was in graduate school that there was a dearth of information about Jewish women in standard narratives about American women's history. You know, they'd show up occasionally, but usually in the labor movement, where they belonged, there was nothing wrong with that, but there were all these other groups, small ethnic groups, different racial groups, all of which should be included in the narrative of American women's history, but where were the Jewish women? And that's something that bothered me from my very, early, from my very earliest training in American women's history. And as I was kind of going through my career and, think, and my books, book topics and thinking about subjects that I wanted to spend some time writing about, I thought, well, you know, we have a lot of, we have some attention paid to the Jewish women who were involved in second wave feminism starting in the 1960s and thereon. But what about first wave feminism? What about in the earlier women's rights movement, the suffrage movement? What, ha what was women's role in that? And when I started to think about it, I realized that no one had ever written about this topic before. There was just a big gaping hole in the literature. So first of all, for a professional historian, a gaping hole in the literature is the best thing ever. <laughs> okay, it allows you to write, you know, to work on something no one else has ever written about before, to do research and work on topics and look at sources that no one else has ever thought about using before. These are all good things. Plus, my first book was about American Jewish adolescent girls from about the 1860s through the 1920s. And people often asked me what happened to those girls when they grew up and became women. And in some cases I did know, and in some cases I did not know. And I had always retained an interest in trying to look, keep, keep an eye on some of those people and see what happened to them later. So these were some of the interests that led me to write about this topic. And then once I began to see that there was no scholarship on the topic of Jewish women in the suffrage movement, or, or very limited scholarship, I should say, I also thought about, well, First wave feminism, you know, or the earlier women's rights movement, was never only about the right to vote. You know, the women's rights movement was never only about the right to vote. What were some of the other causes that women were involved in in the United States in the earlier part of the 20th century? And as I began to do some research on that, it became clear to me that what many suffragists who um, did after they got the right to vote was to go into several different movements. And peace and birth control were two of those movements. They were extremely important to large swaths of American women, including women who had not particularly been suffrage activists. And I thought, OK, I think I have found my topic. Let's look at Jewish women and these three big feminist social movements and see 
what was their role, and not just in a way to say, oh, well, Jewish women were there too. That's not very interesting. But what impact did they have? And not just what impact did Jewish women have on these movements, but what impact did they then have on the Jewish community? What did they take back from their activism to the Jewish communities that they were part of? To look at these influences as a kind of multi-directional set of influences. What happened to women who were involved in activism? How did they come to be that way? Was it something about their Jewish identity that sent them in this direction? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. There were all these questions I had. And so this is really what launched me on this project. And what I found out is I began to do research, looking at all kinds of materials, diaries, letters, Yiddish and English newspapers, board minutes, um, meeting minutes, all kinds of different primary sources and documents. I began to see that, in fact, Jewish women were everywhere in these movements. That it was actually a big problem that the earlier historians of these movements had never noticed or written about this because they were missing out on an important story. And that's, that also seemed important to me, not just as someone who studies American Jewish history, but also as someone who has, like many other historians, been troubled by the fact that a lot of American women's history tends to focus on a certain kind of white middle class Protestant women. Those women were extremely important. They were definitely dominant in a lot of the women's rights activism, but they weren't the only ones there. And actually our understanding of those movements is much richer when we see how there was ethnic diversity and religious diversity and racial and class diversity within these movements. That tells us more about how popular and, broad, and how broad the appeal was of these movements in the earlier part of the 20th century. So this is really what launched me on this project. So I want to talk very briefly about each of these movements kind of um, following each other. So let's start with the suffrage movement, which is chronologically first. So it's too easy to say that many Jewish women believe that people should have the right to vote. First of all, something to just point out about the suffrage movement in general is that by the time the women's rights movement kind of culminated with the passage of the 19th Amendment and women getting the right to vote, right, there had already been a number of other women's rights had already been secured. Not all of them, clearly, but things like more access to higher education for women in women's colleges like Goucher, among other places. There was also married women's property rights, which did not, which barely existed earlier in the 19th century, which also had to be secured. So the right to vote was never it, the only goal of this earlier women's rights movement. There were many goals involved in that. And as Jewish women became well, grew, grew in number in the United States, it was natural that they would become interested in what was occupying the attention of many women of their time. So, for instance, in the late 19th century, many women in their local communities wanted to do things to make their local communities better. And they wanted to clean up the streets, for instance, things like this. They wanted to take care of the community. And they kept on running into obstacles because they didn't have the vote. And so that many women who did not necessarily start off as radical political activists turned into various kinds of feminist and women's rights activists because they found that without the political currency of the vote, for instance, they couldn't get what they wanted. They couldn't achieve what they wanted to achieve. That was just as true for Jewish women as for other women in other kinds of groups all across the United States. Now, the Jewish population in the United States was not very large in, until the mid-19th century. The number that's typically given is about 250,000 Jews in America in 1880. Okay, I'll have to add to that ish, right? We never know exactly how many people we're talking about. But of course, subsequent to around 1880, huge waves of migration from Southern and Eastern Europe brought literally millions more Jews into the United States and increased that population tremendously. 
included among many of those migrants okay, was a group of Jewish women who were used to, from Europe already, from their Eastern European experience, to public activism, to having a political voice, to making a political claim. And so when that group met the group of women who were native-born in America, Jewish women, and they kind of, they, there was some conflict, but they also could see in each other the opportunity to really make a difference in the world around them, both as women and as Jews. And so there's this combination of motivations that go into Jewish women's activism that to some degree helped soften the differences between those groups of women. They might not have been religiously observant in the same way. They might not have spoken the same language, literally and figuratively. But there were things about a Jewish background and a culture of caring for the community that they shared. And there were things about looking around and trying to make the world a better place that they shared. And so actually activism helped smooth over some of the differences that existed among various segments of the American Jewish community. By the time you get to the later part of the period that I write about, the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, then we're talking sometimes about Jewish women who were third and fourth generation, sometimes more, American already. And then those differences mattered even less to some degree, although you would never say that they were all alike. And that would be kind of leading a lot of important differences. So the suffrage movement was appealing to a large swath of Jewish women. But there was a problem in the suffrage movement. This was a problem for the other movements as well, but it was most pronounced in the suffrage movement, and that was anti-Semitism. Jewish women activists in the United States and elsewhere faced a very significant problem with anti-Semitism. And the suffrage movement was not very welcoming. The suffrage movement was primarily, though certainly not exclusively, white, middle class, and Protestant. And there was you know, not necessarily an interest in having all these people that they saw as foreigners coming to join them. Many of the leaders of the suffrage movement, people we think of as feminist heroines, and they are, but people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Carrie Chapman Catt, who were very important suffrage leaders, made all kinds of what we might now term unfortunate statements, but that's not really strong enough. <laughs> Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton presided over the publication of something called the Woman's Bible in 1895. If this book were published today, it would still be like a bombshell going off. It's that radical. If you read it, it's, it really is it's this radical thing. It blames monotheism, particularly Judaism, for patriarchy and all of women's wrongs. It's a very radical text. It's quite anti-Semitic in large part. Jewish women had a hard time convincing themselves that they should join the organized suffrage movement when someone like that was at its helm. Now, the suffrage movement distanced itself from Stanton and the Woman's Bible. They, they couldn't afford to be associated with that either, and they kind of moved her out of positions of leadership. The reason we have a Susan B. Anthony dollar and not a Stanton dollar is partially because Stanton became a little bit persona non grata, even among the women she had led for so many years. But still, there was this feeling, and then there was also a feeling that there was um, a lot of nativist sentiment was expressed. Suffrage leaders like Carrie Chapman Catt would say things like, well, how come all these unwashed immigrants get, the, you know, male immigrants get the vote before someone like me gets the vote? I'm an educated American woman. That made the suffrage movement a little uncomfortable, or sometimes a lot uncomfortable, for Jewish women. So they tended to support the movement, not so much in large groups, in a group like the National Council for Jewish Women, but more as individuals. They were more likely to get involved as individuals or in smaller groups. The largest Jewish women's groups were a little reluctant to give their seal of approval to the suffrage movement, given the anti-Semitism they found there. Still, there were some very significant Jewish women suffragists. One was a woman named Maud Nathan, who became one of my personal favorites um, while working on this project. I already knew about Maud Nathan. She's in my first book as a teenage girl. <laughs> She's someone I knew a lot about, actually. But she 
became probably the most important Jewish woman suffragist, and not just in the United States, but internationally. She spoke many languages. She would go into international suffrage meetings and translate from the English to the French to the German that were in use at these meetings. She, was, she enjoyed kind of tweaking stereotypes. She was always beautifully dressed. She was from a very wealthy family, and she took great pride in being beautifully dressed because she said that people assumed that suffragists were all wild-eyed radicals who didn't know how to put on their clothes, and she wanted to demonstrate that that was not the case. So she was an important person. Now, I should say that just because there were a lot of Jewish women suffragists does not mean that there were no Jewish women anti-suffragists. The anti-suffrage movement in the United States, we tend to forget, but was actually bigger than the suffrage movement for most of the, most of the decades that women were fighting for the right to vote. The most important anti-suffragist among American Jewish women was a woman named Annie Nathan Meyer. You might recognize the Nathan in the middle of her name. She and Maud Nathan were sisters. They couldn't stand each other. So basically, Maud said yay, and Annie said nay. Annie was actually a founder of Barnard College. Her profile was exactly what you would expect from a suffragist, but because Maud was a big suffragist, she had to be an anti-suffragist. If you read their letters, they would duel in um, magazines like The Nation, which was a very popular. They would write nasty competing letters to the editor. They were a spectacle, and they knew it. They took their show on the road sometimes and would go speak together, and they just didn't like each other very much. I mean, there's not, you know, it's not, Annie Nathan Meyer didn't really have a very important theoretical objection to suffrage. As soon as the 19th Amendment was passed, she became a leader in the League of Women Voters. So, you know, but there were, the, I, do, I want to mention both because it's a nice human interest story. And also, I know this from looking at them as adolescents, they didn't like each other when they were kids either. This was a long, long last to standing. They just did not like each other. Um, they, they, but Annie Nathan Meyer is an example of a Jewish woman who kind of changed her mind or had to change her mind once women had the right to vote and then immediately became involved with civic life. And that's what happened with Jewish women, both as individuals and in larger groups. Women got the right to vote, and they said, okay, we've got the right to vote, let's do two things. Let's become more involved in our communities, particularly, as I will discuss in a moment, birth control and peace, and let's take this back. We now have the right to vote in the United States. We're full citizens. Shouldn't we have a little more power in our synagogues and in our Jewish communities at home? And so in the board minutes of synagogues all across the United States, starting as soon as the 19th Amendment passed, you have women breaking up board meetings, agitating, breaking up synagogue services sometimes and saying, we want representation on the board, we want more of a say here. So in other words, what was happening kind of out there in the world in terms of women's progress was then brought back into the Jewish world and had an impact there. And what you see is that in congregations across the United States, women started serving as board members very shortly after the 19th Amendment was passed. Not everywhere, not in every kind of synagogue, but it's a very noticeable thing. You can see it all across the country, not just in major metropolitan areas, in um, the synagogue board minutes of a synagogue in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, for instance. Um, women disrupted a, a service on the, Jewish, on the high holidays um, during the Jewish New Year, right after the 19th Amendment was passed, and they insisted on being heard. They disrupt, they held up the service. They actually surrounded the Torah scroll and would not allow the service to continue. And they said, we're not leaving until you promise that one of us is going to be on the board next week. And, and it happened. You can read the board minutes, you know. It's a little, it's actually one of those um, historians' moments where you read the board minutes and it's very clear that the person who was writing down those minutes did not approve of this at all. <laughs> you know, there's a tone, okay. It's always fun to read those kinds of documents. 
So Jewish women took this back to their own communities, and then they also got, continued to get involved and actually expanded their involvement in a collective way into other women's movements of the early 20th century. Now, when I was writing this book, another obvious movement to discuss could have been the labor movement. Like, that's something that so-called everybody knows, right? Jewish women were extremely involved and important in the American labor movement. But there's a lot of scholarship on that. I did not feel it necessary to reinvent that wheel. And I was actually also interested in middle-class women, not just working-class women, and what they were doing. What kind of activism were they involved with? We all kind of know that Hadassah, for instance, a major Jewish women's group, was founded in the early 20th century in 1912. Well, those Hadassah women, this is their Jewish activism. Were they also involved in other women's rights movements? I was interested in this. And the answer to that is basically yes. Any place I looked, no matter what kind of source we were talking about, no matter what part of the country we're talking about, no matter what religious, ethnic, national, class background we're talking about, Jewish women were involved in, early, in this early feminist activism everywhere. And one thing that was extremely gratifying for me as a historian was that I began to find some of the girls I wrote about in my first book. Now, you can imagine, now if you have somebody, let's say I had a girl named um, Jenny Frank, Jenny Frank, Jenny Purvin. Jenny Purvin, I happen to know who she married. Okay? Her file at the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati includes information about her adult life. So I already knew, actually, that from my earlier research, kind of what happened to her later in life. But many of the girls that I worked on, I, you know, I was writing about them as adolescents. Depending on what kind of source I was looking at, if I didn't know who they married, I had no way of tracing them. How do you find them? How do I know what happened to Rose Halpern? She could be anybody. Do you know how many Rose Halperns there are? I mean, you can't find them. And if you don't know who Rose Halpern married, this is a problem with women's history. They sometimes drop out of the record. But I actually, what was interesting to me was that when I started to do this research trying to trace some of these women, is that I found them because very often in their adult lives as activists and as members of organizations, they used both their maiden and their married name, which is kind of interesting that it wasn't unheard of. Carrie Chapman Catt, whom I mentioned earlier, did that. But it was interesting to find that. So I was actually able to trace some of these people. And I got all excited at the archives. Oh, look, there's Jenny. You know, <laughs> I remember her when she was 16. Now she's 45, and she's president of the League of Women Voters in Chicago, which tells us something. And in fact, every girl that I had worked on earlier, that I was able to find every single one of them, and we're not talking about hundreds of people, but dozens, every single one of them was an activist, which is also significant. I can't stand here and claim that I looked at you know, hundreds of thousands of women, right? I can't make that claim. But it is significant that every person that I found was involved in either the birth control or the peace movement, and sometimes in both. So that, that matters. That tells us something about what the culture was like for American Jewish women from a variety of backgrounds. So let's start briefly with the birth control movement. Now, clearly there was such a thing as birth control long before there was a birth control movement. But the organized movement is typically dated in the United States to either 1914 or 1916, but when Margaret Sanger began to be active. Right, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this narrative, and of course, Jean Baker has written a whole book about Margaret Sanger that I commend to your attention. But what you may not know is that Margaret Sanger's um, lieutenants, let's call them, were almost all Jewish women. The doctors who worked for her in the early birth control movement, the activists, were all Jewish women, and Jewish women were very, very eager, let's call them early adopters. <laughs> Within a generation, the demographics of the American Jewish community dropped dramatically. They had, it depends on which numbers you like to use, but American Jewish women from one generation around 1900 to the next around 1925 had 2.7 fewer children. That is not an accident. That number, even if you put in a huge margin of error, is clearly not an accident. That's a 
you know, an intentional thing. And what's interesting is that that actually continues a pattern of dropping fertility that had started in Europe. That's not new to the United States. Jewish women's fertility numbers had dropped anyway. They were making decisions not to have no children. These were not women who chose childlessness. They were women who chose to control the timing of their children, when they would have them, how they would go about creating their families. So Jewish women were very eager consumers. And when Margaret Sanger went to open the very first birth control clinic in the United States in 1916, she very purposefully chose Brownsville, like an area that's now, that's Brooklyn, not a Jewish area now, but it was heavily immigrant then, almost all Jewish and Italian. And she advertised with a handbill, this has been widely reproduced, some of you may have seen it, in English, Italian, and Yiddish. Mothers, it was directed to mothers. Mothers, if you want to take control of your bodies, that's not exactly what it said, but more or less, come, come to our clinic. Now this clinic, I need to say, was completely illegal. It was illegal in the United States, in most states, it differed a little bit from state to state, but generally speaking, distributing birth control information, let alone devices, was, was illegal in the early 20th century in the United States. Contraception was classified as obscenity, and obscenity was, and there were laws against the dissemination of certain kinds of obscene materials that were in place. They were not always hugely enforced, but they were, opening this clinic was an illegal act. Going to it was an illegal act. Leaving with the diaphragm was an illegal act. Telling your sister about your diaphragm, you want to go get a clinic, was an illegal act. Writing in the mail to tell somebody about the diaphragm you got at this clinic was illegal. The birth control clinic itself only lasted about five days before the police shut it down. <laughs> and then you have all these fantastic courtroom scenes, you know, courthouse scenes, where Margaret Sanger and her sister and a Jewish social worker she had hired to be a Yiddish translator were all arraigned, and they're in the courthouse, and you have these you know, fabulous newspaper articles in both English and Yiddish about Jewish mothers coming to the courthouse and sitting there with their babies and their baby carriages in tow to support the birth control activists. Now, Italian women were there, too. I don't want to make this sound like it's only Jewish women doing this. And the Catholic birth rate also dropped in a way that's not coincidental, um, not quite as extreme as the Jewish case. But Jewish women were clearly there. And the whole going to this clinic radicalized some women. One of the women I write about in my book, a woman named Rose Halpern, had had seven pregnancies in 11 years. Um, she lost one baby, but had six others. And she was just tired. I mean, that's what she writes, you know, she was tired. She went to this clinic, she heard about it. She, got, she was fitted for a diaphragm, which was the most up-to-date technology available at the time. And she then became an activist the rest of her life. She worked with Margaret Sanger the rest of her life. She had no money, she was from a poor family. Her husband was not a very successful laborer, and then he was a failed socialist politician. But what she donated was her time and sometimes her presence. So that was in 1916 that she first met Sanger. In 1934, almost 20 years later, she was long past her own childbearing years, but she accompanied Sanger to hearings in Washington, D.C. before a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee to testify about what a difference this movement had made to her life. And Sanger actually wrote her a letter saying, don't let your daughters dress you up too much, you know, dress down. Like she wa Sanger wanted her to look like a poor immigrant woman to make the point that these were the people who needed help the most. Middle class and upper class women had some access to contraceptive information from their doctors, even though it had to be on the down low. But poor immigrant women who did not have regular medical care depended on birth control activists and clinics like the ones that Sanger opened to have access to contraception at all. So what you see is Jewish women adopting these strategies very early, and they, you, know, you can tell they were kind of voting with their feet, so to speak, and the numbers went down. 
But they didn't just stop there, they also became activists in their community. And you see, when you read Jewish newspapers in English and in Yiddish from this period, there are massive discussions about what the Jewish attitude in America should be toward birth control and contraception. It's not so simple. People wanted to control their families, but there's a high value on motherhood and on families and children within traditional Jewish culture. How can you reconcile those things? It wasn't clear at all. And so there's an ongoing debate. What's fun from the historian's perspective about reading this debate is that it was illegal to actually talk about anything with the right words. And so you get these fantastic euphemisms, which most of which in Yiddish were completely beyond me. I had to get help with that because they were kind of using euphemisms for things. I had no idea what, what the reference was in most cases. But they had to find a way to talk about these issues without actually talking about them because then they couldn't have published the papers. And so there's a really a serious debate that goes on for a period of several decades within the American Jewish community. Now, two sources that historians had always used as proof that the American Jewish community was totally behind birth control from a very early period. Two plays were published and produced in Yiddish in 1916 on the subject of birth control. These plays have been, one was in New York and one was in Chicago. These plays have been cited by I don't even know how many historians, including me, okay, as proof of, well, the Jewish community was clearly very engaged in and supportive of birth control. Well, with the help of a grant, I had these, these plays translated. They're in handwritten, you know, handwritten Yiddish in a manuscript. It would, that, I can read Yiddish, but it was too much for me. So with a grant, I had these plays translated. And with every scene the translator sent me, she would say in the subject line of the email, you're not going to like this. <laughs> and it turns out that both of these plays are extremely anti-birth control, <laughs> big time anti-birth control. One of them is really misogynist. It's a very disturbing text, actually. Um, they did not live on forever. No one has ever produced these plays again. But it was, a, it was an important, a salutary reminder to me that just because I can make and back up the argument that Amer the American Jewish community supported birth control, that doesn't mean that everybody was on board, especially in this earlier 1916. By the time birth control was declassified as obscenity in 1936 in a federal court case, um, the American Jewish community by then really was you know, almost unanimously, almost unanimously supportive. And again, this was not for those people about not having children. It was about choosing how to space their children and how to build their family and how to have healthier, better children. Now, there was a concern that the birth control movement with a focus on having better children could kind of go to the dark side and start making decisions about who should be allowed to have children at all. The eugenics movement, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, was very popular. But the thing that we have to remember, that the eugenics movement, the kind of science of people, of producing so-called better people, was a respectable science in the first part of the 20th century. It was mainstream. We now think of eugenics, or at least I do, and shudder and think Nazis. Okay, but that's hindsight, looking at it. That was not, you can't, you can't project that back onto the 1910s and 1920s. And basically, there were two kinds of eugenics. Positive eugenics, let's have better babies, and negative eugenics, let's stop people from having not better babies. And the birth control movement was clearly on the side of positive eugenics. This, I'm bringing this up because I am inevitably asked about Margaret Sanger and eugenics. Um, she, you know, she was certainly in the eugenics movement, as were many, many rabbis, for instance. If you look at the board members of the American Eugenics Society in th through the 30s, they include rabbis, uh, th th those board members. But Sanger, the birth control movement overall was much more about let's have better babies. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. It is true that in some areas, some parts of the American Jewish community, there was discomfort and a concern that anti-Semitism was behind the appeal to Jewish women to engage in these practices. And so there was some discomfort. I don't want to make it sound like everybody was enthusiastic all the time. But generally speaking, the American Jewish community was supportive. 
And finally, on the birth control movement, that also meant that there was a cohort of Jewish women doctors who got extremely involved in the movement. The women doctors who staffed virtually all of the early birth control clinics throughout the United States from the 1920s on were almost all Jewish women, including right here in Baltimore, where a Goucher graduate named Bessie Louise Moses, she graduated here in 1915, she opened the first birth control clinic in Baltimore. That was a very typical story. And she, unlike some other clinic directors, insisted that this clinic treat African-American patients as well. They had separate hours. There was only so much you could do in Baltimore <laughs> in the 1920s, you know, late 1920s. But that in other cities, that wouldn't necessarily have happened. And the roster of the doctors who were involved in the movement in these early decades, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, is not 100% Jewish, but very heavily Jewish. Some of that was because those Jewish women couldn't get jobs. They were discriminated against as both Jews and, and as women. And so this was an arena, a public health arena, basically, that was open to them because it was new. But they also really believed in the cause. And you can see that that belief wasn't just these individual doctors, but also supported in the community. The National Council of Jewish Women, which has typically been seen as a middle class, pretty lowercase c, conservative group, it was involved in funding those clinics all over the United States. And that has been just written out of the history. So for instance, in St. Paul, in St. Paul Minnesota, not even a very big Jewish community. First birth control clinic in the entire region was founded and opened by the National Council of Jewish Women. And it wasn't taken over by what would become Planned Parenthood, that wasn't the word used yet, um, until about six years after its initiation. That story was common all over the United States, particularly in smaller cities. So that Jewish women were involved in the birth control movement at every level, as consumers, as distributors, as activists, and as professionals, as healthcare professionals. And so Jewish women were extremely involved in what was an important feminist movement of the early 20th century. So moving along to peace. You know, peace, peace strikes some people as odd sometimes. You know, how could Jewish women, particularly in the 30s, be involved in a peace movement? And that is a good question. But the thing is that Jewish women had been involved in the peace movement since long before World War I, let alone the lead up to World War II. That National Council of Jewish Women that I mentioned, which was the kind of mainstream middle-class Jewish women's group, started a committee on peace and arbitration in 1908. There was a peace movement, a worldwide peace movement, long before World War I. We often think about World War I as the turning point. After that, everybody runs around saying, we can never let this happen again, at least until World War II. And that was the moment when the peace movement takes off. But in fact, there's a much longer history to the peace movement. In the United States, it goes back to the very earliest years of the 19th century. And there was Jewish involvement in that peace movement in the early, to, excuse me, to mid 19th century. So there's that kind of background. There's also a background of women's special involvement in the peace movement. And that is a late 1800s, early 1900s and on development, where women began to use arguments about their roles as mothers, as justification for all kinds of public activity. Like I mentioned before, well, we're mothers. It's our job to keep our houses clean. Therefore, it should be our job to keep the city streets clean. Therefore, we have to have a public role and preferably a vote in the city in order to be able to do that. So the motherhood was used as a justification for all kinds of public activity and activism. And peace is included in that. So for Jewish women, peace was an almost natural thing to go into. Because as Jews, they were also interested in peace. Anywhere there was war in the world, it was always bad for the Jews. 
Right? It, was always, it always affected the Jewish community. And so there was a Jewish interest as well as a women's interest in peace. And so it's not really surprising that Jewish women became heavily involved in the peace movement. This was a phenomenon not only in the United States, but also internationally. The women who headed the various national sections of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, or WILF, which is much easier to say, WILF, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, were almost all Jewish. In Germany, in Hungary, in Romania, okay, in France sometimes, not in England, but in most, most countries in Europe were all Jewish women at the heads of those important you know, lobbying groups. In the United States, they weren't the heads, but they were kind of the next layer of leadership down. And Jewish women were involved both in these non-sectarian women's peace groups like WILF and through their own Jewish organizations in peace meetings. So that the National Council of Jewish Women, for instance, in, on a national level, encouraged every single chapter all over the United States to hear a report on world peace and international affairs at every single chapter meeting. And they did it. You can go to the Jewish Museum of Maryland and read the, more, the minutes from the National Council of Jewish Women in Baltimore, and they have a peace report at every meeting, starting from that in about 19... Here it's, here it's a little bit late, actually. Here it's about 1923. Other chapters that I found, they started that earlier. So that there's this interest in peace that becomes really important and prominent. And again, they didn't just do it for themselves or only in women's groups. They then went to synagogues and said, let us work with the sisterhoods in the synagogues to have peace days. And so that there was always a peace Shabbat every year in November, around the time of Armistice Day, which was celebrated by women's peace groups across the country. There was a Jewish twist on that, that these women brought to the Jewish community. There are multiple, multiple traditional Jewish texts that support the idea of peace. Now, there are also plenty that support war, but it was easy to find a Jewish justification for peace. And so these groups did that. So on the individual level, many of these women were very committed to peace. On the collective level, through their Jewish women's groups, they were committed. And then in their activism in non-Jewish women's groups, they were very powerful forces for peace. This went on throughout the 1910s and 1920s. Um, in the late 1920s, Frederick Libby, who was the head of the National Council for Prevention of War, estimated that two-thirds of peace activists in the United States were women. Of those women's groups, Jewish women were a very significant part. And if you look at the constituent, the membership, you'll see that in every major women's peace group in the United States, there's Jewish women as leaders, and also the Jewish women's groups are members of the chapter. So there's all these different connections. The problem, as you can imagine, that really hit those Jewish women, the crisis that did confront them, was in the 30s, once Hitler took power, and it became, you know, a, lot of, a lot of peace activists had this problem. How do we respond to this threat? Is it different than threats that we faced before? Right? How can we, you know, how do we respond to this? And for Jewish women peace activists, it was a terrible crisis because many of them really believed and had devoted decades of their lives at some points, at some places, to universalist ideals, ideals about world peace, and not just in a very naive, oh, can't we all just get along kind of way. They worked on international institutions. They tried to get human rights conventions ratified. They were involved in campaigns to get the U.S. to join the League of Nations and the World Court. Not successful campaigns, but campaigns. Okay. They were involved in actually really trying to remake the international world order so that there could be no more war. And peace activists were actually on a high at the end of the 1920s. Okay. At the end of the 1920s, something called the Kellogg-Briand Act was passed, which actually outlawed war as an instrument of international relations. Now, of course, we know, we know what happened next, <laughs> but they didn't know that at the time. At the end of the 1920s, there was huge optimism about how the, this century was going to be different than all other centuries. 
that it was going to be, you know, and we, that may have turned out to be true, not in the way that they meant, but they really believed that. So when Hitler came into power, and immediately these connected Jewish women who had international contacts, both in the women's peace movement and in Jewish communities, began to hear rumors about Hitler and what he wanted to do and what the Nazi party stood for, immediately, long before this was very public information throughout the rest of the country, these women were like, wait a minute, we, have, we might have to reassess here. How are we going to react to this very specific threat to us as Jews when we believe in universalist ideals? But if Hitler doesn't believe in them, you know, what are we supposed to do about that? You know, is this the same? And then you begin to see in all kinds of meeting minutes and in the newspapers just a huge crisis you know, throughout the American Jewish community. What do we do? How do we react? And you find people trying to thread a very thin needle eye. You know, well, we denounce Hitler, but we, don't, you know, we abhor all war. You could keep up that position for a while through the 30s, but it became increasingly difficult to keep up that position. In the meantime, the Jewish women leaders and members of peace organizations in Europe were all either being exiled, rounded up, or exterminated. And it was very hard to overlook that. So that some women, like Carrie Chapman Catt, for instance, whom I mentioned earlier was a kind of xenophobic suffrage leader, turned into a hero in this moment in the peace movement. As early as 1933, she started agitating against the Nazi party and warning anyone who would listen to her, and she had a lot of people listening to her, that this was a unique threat, and even though she had been devoting her life to peace since the end of the suffrage movement, she wasn't sure about this, and because she was so well connected, she, helped, she actually helped several women peace leaders escape, and she served as kind of a clearinghouse so that a lot of Jewish women who ran away from Nazi Germany would go to her house first, and then they would, she would let them stay with her while she kind of, they help, she helped them figure out where they would go next. She became a kind of clearinghouse and a safe house for Jewish women, like the head of Wilf, a woman named Gertrude Baer, who had to run away. And of somebody that Kat had become very close with, a Jewish woman named Rosa Manis, she, you know, Kat said to her again and again, come over, I can get you a visa, you know, come, I'm going to get you out of there. But Rosa Manis wouldn't leave her brother behind. Kat couldn't get him out, and they both ended up being killed in a concentration camp. And when that happened, Kat went ballistic. This was a little bit later, it's 1940, and she said, she said to every, all these peace groups, I've been telling you, I've been telling you and telling you, we can support world peace, but we're going to have to do something about this first. And she became someone who was actually kind of committed to the U.S. going into World War II, which was an odd position for a peace activist to take. Jewish women had, it was just, it was so difficult for them. And then they also were very unhappy with what they perceived as the indifference of their colleagues in the peace movement. So that the National Council of Jewish Women wanted to know why their colleagues in the peace movement in Minneapolis or Baltimore or New York or Philadelphia weren't denouncing Hitler in stronger terms. Why they weren't denouncing Nazism, why they weren't pointing a finger and saying, look how he's treating Jews. This is a problem for world peace. Now, from the peace group's perspective, they're not, you know, that wasn't their job, their role in life necessarily. They didn't want to get too hung up on just one group when they had all these universalist ideals. You can kind of see where they were coming from too, at least at first, but it led to some major disagreements and really kind of agony on the part of activists who had to decide what are they going to do? Are they going to still pay dues to Wilf when Wilf will not recognize that there's a problem? What do they do? Right? And so this led to a change in the American Jewish community's attitude towards issues of war and peace. And by the end of the 1930s, most Jewish women's groups, including the National Council for Jewish Women, and the National Federation of Temple Sisterhoods, another heavily involved peace group, um, had backed off. They kind, of, they kind of, they felt that they had to change their minds. But they did that, with, it, was, it was really an agonizing decision for many of them. 
and you see, you, you read their writing, their personal letters, and even some of their public um, utterances, and they're just, it's, it's, like, it's really a tragedy. They didn't feel supported by other peace activists. They saw that the world was going to hell in a handbasket. They were worried about relatives that they might have had back in, or colleagues that they knew back in Europe. They could see that Jews were being specifically targeted, and they just, you know, they ended up kind of taking their culture of caring about the wider community and focusing it more, making it more Jewish in some ways than it had been before when they were confronted with the choice, universalist ideals or Jewish realities. Not everyone did. There were Jewish activists who remained unreconstructed pacifists from, you know, throughout, throughout the entire war, actually. One of the women I write about in the book, named Rebecca Raher, had been involved in peace activism for decades, and she just could not bring herself to do anything that would even remotely support the war effort. She acknowledged that Hitler was different, but just couldn't, she just couldn't cope. So she kind of ran away from the United States during the war. She wouldn't work with the Red Cross. She didn't want to have anything to do with the war. Instead, she went to the Dominican Republic, which many of you will know was one of the only places that accepted refugee Jews, and she worked with refugees there. And she said, this is going to have to be what I do during this war. I can't have anything to do with the war, but I can help people who have escaped Europe. That's how she kind of came to some peace with um, this, this question. Now, because of what we now know, you know, refer to, of course, as the Holocaust, we know what happened in World War II. We have, it's very important to remember that none of these people, including the Wilp and the other activists who did not react very strongly, they had no idea what was going to happen. Nobody could have imagined the carnage of the Holocaust. And it's, we can't read back our own reactions on what their experiences were at the time. But after the war, Jewish women's groups and American Jewish groups in general that had been involved in the peace movement were embarrassed that they ever had been. How could they ever have held these opinions? Look what has just happened in the charnel house that is Europe. And so they either let it slide out of their histories or in some cases they wrote it out of their histories. So the National Council of Jewish Women was founded in 1893. When the 50th anniversary you know, histories of the movement were written 50 years later, they don't mention the peace movement at all in most cases, despite the fact that those, that group had been heavily involved. The National Federation of Temple Sisterhoods, which had been listed as one of the top five peace organizations in the United States, stopped talking about peace, wrote it out of their um, histories as well. They just let it slide away. And of course, in the anti-communist environment of the post-war era, being interested in pacifism was very dangerous anyway. I mean, a group like Wilp lost most of its members between World War II and McCarthyism. Was, that group was terribly weakened by the events of the mid-20th century. And I actually find when I speak to National Council of Jewish Women groups now, including a leadership group once, people who do know something about their own institution's history, they don't know anything about any of this. They don't know that their grandmothers were birth control activists. What? My grandmother did something illegal? You know, they don't know anything about the peace work. What do you mean? How could they have been involved in the peace movement during Nazi Germany? You know, they don't know about it because it got written out of the histories. So just to bring this full circle, I started with why I wanted to write this, um, why we wanted to write this book, what interested me in it, and it was partially the whole. But it's not just a hole in the scholarly literature, it's a hole in historical memory that I wanted to try to address in writing about women that people had not written about before, in writing about Jewish women that had not been seen as serious political players but were, in fact, during their own time, and during their own time were recognized as such, even if they weren't later, and a hole in the memories of these institutions themselves that didn't remember that that had ever, that that had ever happened. And I'll just close with um, what, to me, is a very telling anecdote. Now, Gloria Steinem's Jewish grandmother, Pauline Steinem, was the head of the National Council of Jewish Women in Toledo, Ohio, and she was a suffragist. And Steinem writes with some regularity about her Jewish grandmother and how she was inspired by this woman. 
Um, what she doesn't, I, it's not clear, I don't know, I have no direct contact with Gloria Steinem, but I don't know that she knows that Pauline Steinem was on the board of the first birth control clinic in Toledo, Ohio, and that Pauline Steinem attended peace meetings regularly in Toledo, Ohio, and was one of the um, members of the National Peace Committee that the National Council of Jewish Women had. I don't know if she knows that or not about her grandmother. She may just not include it when she talks about her. But it wouldn't surprise me if she didn't know it because there's this hole in the historical memory. So one of the things I wanted to do in writing this book was to kind of plug in that hole a little bit because it's important. We shouldn't forget what people did. These Jewish women had an impact on the larger women's movement, on their own communities, on themselves and their families. Gloria Steinem is not the only second wave feminist who had an activist Jewish grandmother. In fact, that is a very common story, very common, even if they didn't always know it themselves. And the fact that I found that most of the average American Jewish girls that I had looked at for my first book were activists in their adult lives tells us something really important about the American Jewish community and about first wave feminism, that it wasn't only a very small group of people, that it actually had a richer, maybe richer is not the right word, a more diverse life to it than has commonly been acknowledged. And um, something that I have really enjoyed, I really enjoyed in working on this book was being able to fill in some of those gaps, recover some of those voices, and find out about people who are fascinating in their own right, but also in the impact they had on the Jewish community and on the women's movement as a whole. Thank you. Okay. It's a little later than I thought. Okay. Well, I, th I think I think we I think we have a few questions. <laughs> Far be it for me to. Okay, so the question is about whether Jewish women's organizations collaborated with, let's call them non-sectarian, for lack of a better word, women's organizations. So the answer to that is yes. So that, for instance, just to give you an example, in the peace movement, the National, it's a, the National Committee on the Cause and Cure of War was an umbrella women's or peace organization, and it had nine original charter members, including the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association and the National Council of Jewish Women. So that in me, you know, or from an early stage, there was a tremendous amount of collaboration. Jewish women were eager to collaborate with other women. They wanted to have a voice outside their own communities, but they also wanted to have an impact on their communities at home. So they often kind of did both things at the same time. They acted as the Jewish representatives for the women's movement and as the representatives for the peace movement in their, in their Jewish communities back at home. The same thing is true for the birth control movement, that there was a tremendous amount of cooperation, especially in an environment when opening a clinic was illegal, you had to have collaboration. It couldn't just be one group left hanging out to dry. It needed to be some kind of community effort. And so there was a lot of collaboration, which in the peace movement made what many Jewish women saw as the betrayal all the worse. You know, these are people they had worked with and shared goals and activities with, and now, now what? And it was really, it's really very sad, actually, when you read about the, when you read the, what they had to say. Mm -hmm. that she, even before saying this, was very mm -hmm. active in, uh, in, in 
Okay, well, Emma Goldman, so the question is about Emma Goldman. What is her place? You know, there, can, you, can you trace an arc of um, some kind of continuity from Emma Goldman to a later activist, someone like Bella Abzug, and then maybe to Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Um, if it happened after World War II, I don't talk about it, so I'll have to leave that part to somebody else. But, but the thing about Emma, Emma Goldman, as you all know, is, a very radical, is an example of a very radical Jewish women activist. She was an anarchist, right? So for her, that was the most important thing. Any other, I'm okay, thank you. Any other tool that would be useful in fomenting anarchist revolution, like women gaining more control of their bodies, was good by her. But it wasn't her first priority. So Emma Goldman was heavily involved in the birth control movement. She and Sanger corresponded with each other all the time. Um, they were involved. Emma Goldman went to jail for several times for preaching birth control. She actually, every time she went to give a speech on birth control, she took a book so she'd have something to read in jail. You know? <laughs> However, by the time, once World War I started, and once, once the United States entered World War I, Goldman's attention had turned completely elsewhere, and she never really went back to the movement in a big way. Her priority was always her kind of political anarchy. And remember, Goldman was deported. So her, her activity in the United States couldn't last that long because she was sent back to Russia and wasn't allowed back into this country for decades. So she was important symbolically, but actually, except for a relatively short period, she's, she's not that important, really, in this movement in that way. And most of the women that I write about would have disassociated themselves from Emma Goldman. Like, you know, the way that she's been tamed into red Emma on a t-shirt or a cup, it's like cute now, but they didn't find her cute at the time. And, you know, she was involved in an assassination attempt. She was in jail. Many times she was deported. She was not the role model that the National Council of Jewish Women was looking for. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good question, but she had a, she had a kind of temporary... Yeah, and she was certainly not a peace activist. You know, for someone like Goldman, for an, a real, you know, real anarchist like Goldman, if violence was necessary, okay. <laughs> so she was definitely not a peace activist.